If you have your Bibles uh, today, please turn with me in them to Philippians in chapter 1. Philippians in chapter 1. Philippians in chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Where Paul says there, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, we pray for your word, and more importantly, we pray that your word have access, free course in our lives. We want to surrender our hearts, Holy Spirit, and ask that you would take this time and use it in a way that would please you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've had a chance to look a bit at the Apostle Paul and his opening letter to the book in the book of Philippians. And like any author you would know or be acquainted with, you would realize and it would make sense that whatever it is that an author includes in the beginning of his or her book is probably going to be important. They're not going to waste time. In, in other words, um, what really determines whether a reader is going to continue in a book and finish it all the way is going to be what they find in the beginning portion of the book. So you really want to, if you care at all about what you care to say, say it right then and there. And Paul does. Uh, Paul has a lot to say. It's not to mean that Paul doesn't have a lot to say, but it is to point out that with all that he's going to communicate throughout this book, this is very important to Paul because of how much this church means to him. Now, beginning in verse 3 and following, we had a chance to learn and appreciate how much Paul gave thanks to God in all things through his prayers for all the saints. Almost so so much so that every time he went to prayer, he didn't cease to remember this church in his prayers. But in in verse 3, what we notice is that Paul prayed. It's not until verse 9 that we notice what Paul prayed. In verse 3, all we get is a hint as to the fact that Paul, as often as he prayed, lifted them up. But it's here in verses 9 and following that we see the actual content and the substance of Paul's prayer. I wonder if you were asked uh, to lead in prayer or if um, a prayer request went around this room if what we would ask for. If you were asked, what would you like us to pray for? We're about to pray. What would you like us to pray for? We're about to pray. What sort of requests would you have? What would fill your prayer life? Well, right here, we have an apostolic prayer. 
Right here, we have Paul modeling for us as Christians what should mark and characterize our prayer life. If you're somebody who wants to mature in your prayer life to where they're in accordance with God's will, the kind of prayers that, actually, that God pays attention to, that he actually acts on behalf of, this is that kind of prayer. If you want to boost your prayer life at all, you want to pray Bible. That's, that's a clue right there, right? Uh, sometimes we can't get pla- past God, God, thank you for the table. God, thank you for the chair. Thank you for the two liter. Thank you for the, uh, for the pizza. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, sometimes we, we, we feel frustrated. Like, how come my prayers don't get beyond this shallowness? And one of the reasons for that is because we haven't discovered how we're supposed to incorporate Scripture with our prayer life. What infuses and fuels your prayer life is getting God's Word into you. This is how Jesus prayed, if you notice his prayers. In fact, Jesus himself is the one who said in Matthew 4 that man is not supposed to live by bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, prayer For it to be the kind of prayer that God is pleased with and blesses has got to be in accordance with God's heart and God's mind. That's the kind of prayer that God accepts. This is God's mind. It's just revealed in words. We've got God's mind here. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things which he's revealed herein, which is the word, belong to us and to our children, so that we might know them and walk in them. In other words, if I want to know God's heart and God's mind, I need to get into God's Word, so that when it comes time for me to pray, I'm going to be praying in accordance with God's will. And so Paul does right here. And so he does. And what does he do at the outset? He says, he gives us the content. He says, it's my prayer. That your love, church, not just Philippi, but even Pathway, that your love may what? Abound more and more. That your love may abound more and more. Paul is praying for the spiritual growth of this church. Anybody interested in maturing? Anybody interested in knowing what spiritual maturity looks like? What does growth look like in the Christian life? Paul's praying for that here. Paul's praying for that here. And Paul says that part of that growth is going to involve not just more Bible trivia, but what? Love. Love. Everything else is going to fade away, but love is what's going to remain. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, choose the more excellent way. And in the context there in 1 Corinthians 13, it's love. You can have the gift to prophesy. You, you may have all sorts of abilities to be able to wow people. But if you don't have love, Paul says, you're only what? A clanging symbol. You're only a clanging symbol. You're a peacock, is what he's saying. It's just annoying when there's love not there. And Paul is saying, my prayer is, as it relates to growth, the first thing that Paul thinks of in terms of growth is we think of, oh, you got to be able to preach well. You've got to be able to just move people well. You've got to be able to persuade. You've got to be able to sing well. You've got to be able to perform well. Where does Paul go? To love. 
Love is supposed to be the epitome of what should mark a church, love. But he doesn't just say love because he knows that. This church has already modeled for him love. We'll have a chance to see this in the weeks to come. At this point, the church modeled their love by this way. You'll recall in chapter 2, if you've had a chance to read it throughout the week, they send Epaphroditus to the Apostle Paul. Paul's blown away. Epaphroditus isn't just some any ordinary person from their church. He's somebody who plays a significant role in the church. And this church realized, wait a second here. If Paul really invested in us and we learned and got anything out of his time in our life, then we've got to understand it's about the kingdom. And so even though the concerns out there aren't necessarily our concerns happening in here, they're still our concerns. Why? Because we ought to be about the kingdom. And so Paul may have been miles away, and the needs that Paul was encountering with the churches may have been miles away, but if there were, if there were needs there, they took them on as their own. And so what did they do? They sent Epaphroditus out of love for Paul over to him to tend to his needs. And Paul was like, you could have sent me anybody, but you sent him? You must be hurting as a result of his absence in your church. I realized what this must have done in hurting your ministry at the church to lose him for however long. And you don't even have any guarantee. There's no Uber. There's no round-trip plane tickets. Right? You, you got boats. And you got all other forms of transportation. And you have no guarantee that you're going to see that person again. In fact, they got word that this man was sick. But they took the risk anyways. Why? Because they wanted to model love. Love that doesn't take so much my own interests, but the other person's interests ahead of my own. And so they did. And Paul says, look, I understand that there's love there between you all and between you all and me. But I want that love to abound more and more. You see, Christian love can grow. Why? Because God's love, Christ's love, abounds more and more. You see, we may start out having a form of love for certain people, but what ends up happening is as we develop and walk and grow in our relationship with Jesus is what we discover is those sort of situations where we found it difficult to be able to love, we find ourselves able to be able to love more and more. There are times in which when you first become a Christian, there are only certain kinds of people that you can love and be around. There are others around, but because of where you're at, and because of what you've encountered with them, you do everything you can to avoid certain people. But as Christians, what do we do? We take that on as a challenge and we realize, even though I may be starting with this kind of a person, I don't want to end there. I want to be the kind of person with more years under my belt, I find myself being able to enter into spaces that in previous years I wasn't able to. And how did that happen? Because of what Christ was doing. If Jesus is over there with them, I want to be over there with them. If God has a heart for them, I want to be able to have a heart for them. But that's only going to happen as my love abounds more and more. We learned in last week that it's one thing to become a Christian, but it's another thing to become like Christ. And so... When we first become Christians, we don't experience all there is to God's love. We've tasted it. We've experienced it. It's what drew us to him. It's what brought us into a relationship with him. But we realize that there's more to this thing. When I first became married, yes, there was love there. But with each and every year in my marriage, 12 years now, 
I want to hope and I want to believe that that first love that existed when we first came together is a love that has had a chance to abound more and more. I don't want to ride off of 2007's love. I want to be able to have 2019 love. I don't want to have to always appeal every time to my spouse, well, you remember what I did for you though, right? Five years ago, remember where, we t- where I took us? Well, you, you remember that act of kindness though that I did that one weekend three years ago. I don't want to have to be drawn back to old stuff to be able to justify present love. With God, love should always be fresh. I mean, God not only reaches back to what he's done for you, he's doing stuff today. We worship a God that wasn't a God who was involved in our life way back when. He's a God that's here today, even now. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God that's prepared to show up in our lives again and again. I know I proved it to you yesterday, but I want to be here all over again today. I know I showed my love to you last year, but I want to show it to you again this year. You see, that's the mark of a Christian where our love is prepared to abound more and more. More and more. And so if we have God's heart and we're aligned with him, guess what's going to happen? We're going to follow him in his abounding love. But notice, Paul says something interesting. He includes two words. He wants that love to abound, not just in any ordinary or sort of way, but with what? With knowledge and all discernment. You see, what Paul is saying here in this particular passage is this. Years ago, before any one of us were born, y'all remember the famous Beatles song? Anybody? All you need is love. And it hit the charts for a minute. And it was the song in this country. And everybody was singing it and playing it. Google it after, after service. Take a look at it and just see how much it got a hold of this country and this culture. Everybody's like, yeah, 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 that's it. All I need is some love. All I need is love. But then nobody bothered to ask, well, what, what exactly do we mean by love? It all depends. You see, Paul doesn't just say, I want your love to abound more and more. No, no, no. He qualifies it with knowledge and all discernment. And that's important because what we're talking about here is not just love in some fuzzy, generic sense. We're talking about biblical love. We're talking about Christian love. We're talking about a love that comes from God. That love has knowledge and discernment. Yes, the Bible says God is love, but you'll never find it say love is God. You see, when I make the Bible say love is God, then that means I could put anything in there and make it out to be whatever I want it to be. But as soon as I believe and and say God is love, now i got to leave it up to God to define exactly what love looks like. I think our culture could use this in our day and age. Because we live in a time, you and I, our generation, whether you're Gen Z or millennials or some of you maybe Gen X or whatever, we live in a time where we live in a postmodern society. And postmodernity, postmodernism, all it means is all truth is relative. It's subject to culture, it's subject to place, it's subject to individual. And so there's no meta narrative, there's no ultimate truth, there's no universal law that governs all of us to where my truth is your truth. No, my truth is only my, my truth. I'm glad you found love in that way, and I'm happy that that's working for you. 
you see. But there's no definition of love that everyone has to come under. And that's why we, we have a growing move, even our very, in our day and age, with the LGBTQ movement and with all the pressure that you see upon young people and among cultures and even among churches, where it's hardly the chance that you could even have a meaningful conversation with people because it's, you can't differ. You can't have a different perspective. You can't have a different take. You can't want to look at it this way or the other way. Why? Because you cannot violate what I see as love. If I found love, you should be happy for me, however much I've defined it. And so what we're taught from early on is to be able to arrive at truth and find reality by what our biology and our drives are telling us. And nobody should be able to be in, under any sort of objection to what we've arrived at. My, bio, my biology is the truth. It's the meta-narrative. It trumps all other perspectives. What my drives tell me and my instincts are shouting is what I have to follow and you have to be fine with. But notice here, when he says that your love is supposed to abound more and more, he says it's supposed to abound with knowledge. With knowledge. The, the term there is biblical knowledge. What he means is knowledge of God's word. What, what, what he's saying is, I need to go to God to know what is love and what is not. I don't go to my instincts. I don't go to my drives to be able to tell me that. Whether I'm of one persuasion or another, it doesn't matter. Whether we're talking about quote-unquote marriage equality or so-called same-sex marriage or whether we're talking about one kind of sexual practice or another or one lifestyle or another on any camp. The way that we arrive at truth and ultimately defining what true love is, is from God's word. It's from God's word. That's why Paul says it's knowledge, which means I identify with what I feel, but I take what I feel and I bring it to knowledge. I bring it to the light of God's word and I ask God, God, I want to be honest about what I'm led to believe but at the end of the day, I want to allow your knowledge to shape what love at the end of the day is going to look like for me. There are some guys, if they had the chance, will sit down with their wives and say, Honey, I should have told you this long time ago, but I need to tell you this now. Better late than never. I know I'm with you and I've married you, but you got to understand, you see, I should have come out long time ago, but you have to understand how hard this has been for me, but... From as long as I could remember, I've, I've just always found myself, if I were to go off of my feelings that, and where my eyes go, that I just have attraction to. I just feel bound and limited to just one person. I don't mean to offend you, but I just wanted to let you know that I feel attracted to more people than just one person. And I don't know how you're going to take this. I don't know what this is going to mean to us, but he, he's not going to be around. His bags are going to be outside. It's like, I don't know what you're feeling, and I don't know what this means to you or how long it's been going on, but you better find some way to rein those passions in. You see, it doesn't matter. Even as men, from the time that you reach a certain age, puberty, teenage years, every man knows that 
you got enough going on that has developed biologically in terms of your drive and your instincts to, to populate and to impregnate virtually every woman <laughs> breathing and walking around. But do you do it? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know the difference between what you have the capacity to do and what your drives may be from time to time <laughs> leading you to want to do and what you actually are supposed to do. It's like, no. I rein in those passions and those drives and channel it toward what? One person who I'm in covenant with. Not toward just anything breathing and walking around. It, you see, it's not about one group or another. This is something that all of us, but what tells me that? Knowledge. Knowledge. When I allow love to abound, just, come on, don't deprive me of love, though. Are you going to tell me that these two, they, but they sincerely love each other. It's like, look, at the end of the day, it's not an emotional argument that wins the day. Paul is saying, I want your love to abound. So Paul is not knocking love abounding. But he's saying, I want love to abound with knowledge. What is Paul recognizing? We're broken. Whether you're heterosexual or whether you have homosexual proclivities or whether you're, you, you feel oriented toward a, a member of the same sex and you have attractions in that direction or the opposite direction, it doesn't matter. What Paul is saying is, or whether, what, whatever else the struggle may be, what Paul is saying is we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. We know the book, right? As Christians, we live in a fallen world. We live on this side of Genesis 3. It's a broken world, not just the created order, but even our body, our members, no matter who you are. We're all broken and in the process of being redeemed. Every one of our members is disordered, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. Your members are disordered in one way or another. And therefore, what we need is not the whole culture to accommodate us in our definition of love. What we need is a Savior. What we need is Jesus. What we need is the gospel. What we need is someone who is prepared to tell us what really is true, not what I want to hear. So that my love, when it grows and when it abounds, it abounds with knowledge. But there are so many people who are like, no, i got to have love. Even if it means closing this book and chucking it, i got to find love. i got to have love. And I'm like, look, and it doesn't matter which side. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Because we are broken people. And we have the capacity to take ourselves in all sorts of destructive directions with our lives. And it's only going to end up with headache upon headache. And God says, I love you too much. To where I want to see love abounding in your life, but I want to see that love abounding with knowledge. I want you to do it my way. And the only way that can happen is by me being honest with what my real struggles are. God, I got to be honest. I got this definition of love. To me, love is this. And personally, quite frankly, I really don't feel bad or upset or frustrated or troubled about people who look at it this way or that way. But I want your mind. I want to see things through your eyes. I want your lens. I want your word to ultimately shape me and help me know how to define love. Because until and unless my love matches your love, it's not true love. It's not the love that you want for me. He says, with knowledge. And so the only way that's going to happen is what? We got to get in the book. We got to be in God's word and allow his love to take shape and form 
in our lives. You see, Paul says in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in what? In love. It's not either or, it's both and. As a community of people, when we demonstrate love to one another, and as our love is going to be abounding in the coming months and years with each other, more and more, if it's God's will, guess what? It's going to abound with knowledge, which means there's going to be truth and love. But sometimes we want to divorce them, don't we? We got certain camps, they're the, I'm the love camp, which means you can't have God's word or truth. And then over here, we're the truth camp, right, where we tell people like it is. And it, we don't care about how it makes them feel. And, and we keep them away from each other. And God is saying, no, 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 no. We're supposed to have them together. We're supposed to be a people who are capable of speaking the truth in love. Proverbs says, the faithful wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are what? Deceitful. You see, the people in my life that I really want in my life are the ones who are prepared to actually pour into me and tell me knowledge what I want to hear and what I need to hear. But the people who I think are my friends at the end of the day, because of what they're willing to not say to me, even when I need to hear it, but don't do so because they want to preserve what we got going on are really not my friends. Choose your friends right well. Choose your friends rightly. And Paul says here, look, if you really think you got love going on between you and them or you and this group, how is it abounding? In what way? At the expense of God's word? Or is it abounding by means of God's word? But not only knowledge, he goes on and he says, in all discernment. You see, the difference between discernment and knowledge is this. Discernment knows when. Discernment knows how. You see, discernment takes into account the circumstance, the situation, and the timing of it all. That's the difference in Proverbs. When you study Proverbs, the difference between wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Wisdom is knowledge applied. There are a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge, but they lack wisdom. They just do not have the skills to make it in life. Why? Because it's not enough to just have a lot of knowledge and information. That won't do you any good because every day, you know this, every week you walk into, it's different from the other week. There's so many things going on in your life that are outside of your control. There's so many things going on just in the course of the day that you don't discover until it happens and you need to make a decision. But you, there's no cookie cutter way. That's when wisdom takes place. You know how to exercise discernment. Discernment means discretion. You know how to determine at what situation and at what time what needs to be done, what needs to be applied, what needs to be said. There are some people who think just because it should, it's, they, they know it, they got to say it to the person like, no, 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 no. I wouldn't do that if you were you. There's a timing for that. Jesus was that person who walked in discernment. It was in John chapter 2 that we see him. Notice, he knew when to walk into a temple and turn the tables over and grab an item and turn a whip out of it and drive the money changers out of the temple. Why? Because it was a zeal for his father's house that consumed him. At that moment and in that situation, he had to be angry because he knew he could be angry without sinning. It was a holy anger. 
But does that mean every single time that's what he did? No. There were times where he would sit with children. There were other times where he was in a home and he allowed a woman to draw near to him and cast herself at his feet. There were other occasions where he ministered grace to people. There are times where he entertained a Pharisee at night, Nicodemus, and took his questions and spent time with him. But there were also other times where he called men out and said, you brood of vipers. All you are is a white-watched sepulcher. He had discernment. He knew at what time what required what. There are people who wanted him to do all sorts of stuff for him. He's like, whoa, woman, my hour has not yet come. He told his brothers, your time is always. He says, that's not how I operate. I'm in tune with my father. I've got to discern this situation. You see, a lot of times I get, every time I go on conferences or there's Q&A sessions, people always want to know what's a sin and what's not. Is this right or is this wrong? Is it a sin or is it not? You see, you know that somebody is mature when they get beyond those questions. Those are first, second, third year Christian questions. We need to get beyond is it a sin or is it not? Is it best? Is it the best situation? We need to move from good to best. We're just trying, we're like me when I was in school and a few others that were with me early on growing up where every year in the beginning of the school year, after the teacher kind of sent out the syllabus and gave their expectations and then said, are there any questions before I dismiss you? Yeah. What's, what percentage do you have to get in this class to pass? Right? All we want to know from the semester hasn't even begun yet. Haven't even been given an assignment. And what do we want to know? We want to know just how little do I have to do just to pass this class? And sometimes that's how we treat the Christian life is, is, is this a sin or is it not? Pastor, is it okay to dress in this way or is it not? Can I wear this or can I not? Can I listen to this or can I not? I get these questions all the time. Is it a sin to listen to secular music or not? And what I notice here, Paul is like, look, we got to raise that prayer life up. And Paul says, that's not how I pray. My prayer is that you would be so enthralled with God. That's the word I'm looking for. So blown away by him. So taken up by his love. So overwhelmed with his goodness that it's no longer an issue of, do I have to get rid of this? Is it really wrong? Show me where in the Bible first. Is it in the New Testament or is it in the Old? Is it really a sin? But how, it's like, man, if, if we're playing it that safe, if we're trying to walk along the line that close without actually sinning, it's like, what does that really say about us? Paul is saying, I'm praying for more. My prayer is that your love would abound more and more. With knowledge, I want you to have God's word in you, but with all discernment. Meaning, you know what? Sometimes you're not even gonna, you're not gonna have it, a chapter and a verse. You're gonna have to go off of things that have to do. I've been in a lot of situations where, you know what? I had the freedom and I had the right to be able to operate or be the way that I wanted to be. And there are plenty of different situations. But I noticed I, t I had to begin to take into account the other people in the sort of way that it could serve as a stumbling block to them. In the gospel, I'm free. I'm not bound to anyone. But I didn't want to use my freedom as a license 
to rub it in the face of the person whose conscience did not allow them to be able to be around this. People often ask me, legal, is, should marijuana be legalized? Should marijuana be permitted in the church? Should we drink or not? How much? And I think before we could even have these kinds of questions, are we growing in our love? Are we abounding in our love with knowledge and all discernment? That's the key. Because even when you got your case to make, let me tell you something, it ain't over. Because love trumps all of that. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 14. You remember in Romans 14, in Romans 15. This was a situation where you had two different groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews came from a background where their religion and their walk with God did not allow them the freedom and the ability to be able to eat certain kinds of foods. So they were limited to eating one kind of a food. So their conscience was bound, being Jews. And so not everything was kosher, in other words, to use their term. Whereas the Gentiles, on the other hand, Gentiles have no religious background. They were pagans. They may have worshipped their own pagans, but they didn't have the kind of... They didn't have the kind of devout religious specifications like the Jews had. They were free. Everything was free game for them. And so now both groups get saved. And now both groups have to tolerate each other. Both groups have to worship in the same church. Right? Here they are in the same church. Two different camps. Two different backgrounds. Two different histories. And now here they are having to worship. And, and one group, they, they write to Paul. And they're like, Paul, tell them they're sinning. Tell them they got it all wrong. And they're like, Paul, tell them he's got it all wrong. Tell them they're missing you. And Paul writes back, and he's like, look, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not even going there. Uh-uh. And you'll notice, you'll read this on your own, Romans 14. He doesn't even say one person is sinning and the other one is not, or the other person is sinning and the other is not. No. He says, look, he says, make sure that the person who is weak does, doesn't despise the person who is strong. Weak means you have a conscience that just can't handle. It's like, I can't see how somebody could be around that. I can't see how somebody could listen or play that kind of instrument or this, right? The person who's strong is like, I don't see what the problem is. Like, what exactly is sinful about it? It's like, it, I don't see how, I could see how it could be abused, but I don't see how it in and of itself could be sinful. What's your problem? I don't see what the problem is. They're strong. And what Paul says is, look, Make sure that the person who is strong doesn't judge the person who's weak. You see? He gives both of them a responsibility. But the only way they're going to get what Paul is saying is if their love is abounding more and more, not just with knowledge, but with discernment. What do you do in this situation, Paul, is what they're saying. I know our situation is not meat and vegetables, right? We may have some vegans and some paleo and keto and some carnivores in here. I don't know what, what we got going on. But it's not like that where it was a heightened situation. And what Paul is saying is, look, do not destroy, he concludes, do not destroy your brother for whom Christ died. In other words, I don't want my actions, my choices, and my lifestyle to serve as a stumbling block for my brother or sister. And I'm, I'd much, for whom Christ died, and I'd much rather take this, whatever, if it's a lifestyle, or if it's a practice, or if it's something that I'm doing, for the sake of what God is trying to do between us and his church, love abounding more and more, I'd much rather set this aside for the sake of winning my brother and my sister. You see, you're not going to find a chapter and a verse for that situation. 
So just think about a lot of the situations that divide us as a church, that keep us from being in community, that keep us from drawing near to each other, simply because we're holding on to what we, I'm entitled, I have a right, you can't tell me, right? Show me in the Bible, you don't have a chapter and a verse for me, and we hold on to our corner, and we're all in our corners, and we miss what God is trying to do. And the only way we're going to ever arrive at that place as a body with all of our differences in background and experiences and our sensitivities. Some of us may come, back, come from addicted backgrounds where alcoholism was your issue. So just to be around it, you could imagine. It's like, of course, we don't want to see that around. Some of you may come from satanic backgrounds or witchcraft or all sorts of dark situations or maybe it's, it's certain kinds of music that triggered you and you used it for sort of religious purposes. While, while you are in the world, and to even be around certain things like that, it triggers you. Others of you have other backgrounds that go back to the struggles that surrounded your life. We don't know the backgrounds that people have and what triggers them to relapse back. Love says, you know what? If it's bothering you that much, you know what? I'm going to set this aside. Right? I'm going to set this aside. Because what matters to me is you, because Jesus died for you. I want a love in this church, a love. There are some people like, no, I want love, but I got to have what I got to have, and I got to be exactly as I want to be, right? Free, I, I need to freely express myself. That trumps everything else. And what does Paul say? No. Even if you have to set yourself and your interests aside, we're going to see that in weeks to come in Philippians chapter 2. Look not every man to his own things, but also to the things of others. Right? Isn't that what he says? Philippians 2.3. Look not every man to his own things, but also to the things of others. Treat others more significant than yourself. Have this mind in you, which was also where? In Christ Jesus. Jesus set aside what was his right for the sake of you. And I'm going to turn around and say, look, if she wants to be in the church, if he wants to be in community with me, if they want to be around, they're just going to have to be cool with it. I don't care. That's their issue. That's not the Christian. That's not love abounding more and more. That's not love abounding more and more. Friend, God's love, as we're coming to a close here, God's love has abounded to you already. And what is going to give us the power and the ability to be able to abound ourselves toward our brother and our sister is if we first get a glimpse of that ourselves. That's what's going to give us the ability to move forward in our love toward others. Because until that happens, you're always going to hold on to what, but this, this is me. You, you, I got to give this up. What enables people to give it up is I've experienced God's love. He gave up his glory for me. He emptied himself for me. And I'm not going to give this up for them, God help me. Just before we pray, maybe you're here today and you find yourself in, in the love camp. There's no definition, no knowledge, no form. It's just love for love's sake. And that's you. And you find the, the knowledge side difficult. You're like, I'm afraid what my love is going to look like if I allow God to shape it. And maybe there are others of you in another camp where for you it's not the love thing, it's the truth thing, it's the knowledge thing. You're like, I, I love to just let people know where it is in the Bible. I just love to call people out. 
I love to just show people, no, 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 this is what God says without at all taking into account how they feel and where they are and being compassionate and coming alongside them. Well, I'm here to tell you it's not either or. It's not knowledge. I don't want the knowledge camp over here or the love camp over here. No, it's both. It's, it's love with knowledge. It's a love that is taken shape and form with a knowledge of God's love. That's the love that God is looking for in our midst, which means we're going to be prepared to be who we need to be and what we need to be wherever we need to be it as God leads. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. God, I pray right now even for this church and for the love that exists in this church. I want to thank you first and foremost for each person. Lord, we we want to be known for being people who do not cease to keep each other in remembrance of you and of one another. But God, at the same time, we want to grow in our love. Father, I know you've kept us in the world, but help us to not be of the world. Jesus, you said, Father, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. And so, God, I pray you sanctify us. Sanctify our understanding of love. Sanctify our notion of love. Sanctify whatever idea of love we may have. Maybe we got it from the world. Maybe it's just a mixture of all sorts of stuff. My prayer is that the love that we are known for is a love that stems from your heart, from your mind, from your word, and from your ways, Lord Jesus. May we not take our cues from the world and from the culture, but may we take our cues from what we see with you, Jesus, as you lived on this earth and from what we see from your word as you've revealed it here in this book. God, we submit ourselves to you. This may be difficult, It may be a challenge, but I know you're with us. And I pray, Lord God, that you shape this congregation to be a people who love the way you desire for us to love. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Please greet one another.